you know, I've got a little story to tell you about that song. Um, if, if you bought my book, which is available at the info desk after the service, <laughs> a signed copy, <laughs> um, if you've read the introduction, you will know that I took the name Eyes Wide Open from a Stanley Kubrick movie called Eyes Wide Shut. And I really, really struggled with calling it that or with telling people why I had called it that. Because I thought people who have been brought up in nice, safe Christian homes their entire life are going to read this book and say, well, I've never heard of this movie. I'm going to watch it on Netflix and their eyes will be wide open <laughs> because they will say to themselves, the pastor watched this inappropriate movie. And I thought people are going to judge me. And then I thought, well, the people judge you anyway. What difference does it make? If you're going to be judged, just go for it big time, you know? And I would have these conversations in my head before the publishing date came. Should I change the title? Should I come up with something else? I mean, like people might, this might be a stumbling block. And I used to have these conversations in my head in the morning on the way to the office. And then I would switch the radio on, and I'm not kidding, every time I did it, the color came on. I want to see you with eyes What? And I thought, thank you, Lord. And I'm okay. Five or six times as I contemplated changing the title so as not to offend the judgmental people, um, I would switch the radio on and that song would come on. And I thought, okay, I'm just, I'm going to go for it. And here's another thing. Even after the book was written, I struggled with, like, should I talk about this on a Sunday morning? Because here's one of the things that I've learned. Um, you know, there are certain things that it's good to talk about on a Sunday morning when you have everybody, you know, of people from a wide range of backgrounds. And then there's some things that are appropriate to talk about when you've got people who are kind of all on the same page. And the kind of topics that I am talking about in the book and I've been talking about over the last couple of weeks are not normally the things I would talk about on a Sunday morning, at least not in, the, in this way. Um, they're the kind of things that I would talk about, like some of you will have heard me speaking about these things before when we did the academy classes. But even then, there was a wide range of people came to these classes and some of the people would hear these things and say, yeah, this is just where I'm at. This is what I need to hear. But on a couple of occasions, I overheard conversations that troubled me a little bit. I would, I would hear things along this line. You know, I don't understand all the history of the Bible and all the culture of the people in the Bible. And so... I'm obviously misunderstanding it. And when I come to the academy classes and Pastor Martin explains it, I think, oh, I would never have got that. So I no longer just read the Bible for myself. I just wait for Pastor Martin to tell me what it means. 
And I'm like, no, 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 no. And then I read a review of the book on Amazon in which a woman said, it's obviously bothered me because this is the second time I brought it up. So I read this review on Amazon in which the woman says, I only read half this book and it was so wrong I stopped reading it. She should have put in brackets, so I have got no idea what his conclusion is. But anyway, that doesn't matter. And then she said this, and this bothered me. I think he was just criticizing every other Christian's beliefs and telling them they should all have his beliefs. And I thought, no, that's not what I'm saying either. So as a communicator, that makes me say to myself, How can I communicate what I am saying more clearly so that it's not misunderstood? Now, have you, I've been talking about four spiritual diseases that enter into, that can enter into our faith. Last week we looked at legalism and futurism. Legalism produces guilt and condemnation. Futurism produces fear and insecurity. And what we saw last week is to say that legalism is wrong is not saying sin is okay. It's saying that legalism is not the cure for sin. God's loving grace and forgiveness shown on the cross is a cure for sin. And you will not get rid of sin by becoming stricter and more religious and more legalistic. That will just make you feel shame inside and judge other people. You will be free from sin as you open your heart more and more and more to the grace of God. And you won't go successfully into the future by worrying about whether you'll miss the rapture and the Antichrist will give you the mark of the beast and all of that kind of stuff. You will go peacefully into the future knowing that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. That if God before you, who can be against you? And that God works all things together for good for those who love the Lord. And the future is bright because all of Christ's enemies will be made a footstool for his feet and the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Today I'm going to talk about legalism and dualism. Uh, Sorry, literalism and dualism. And when I'm talking about literalism, I want you to hear me clearly. I am not saying the Bible's so deep and confusing that you can't really trust it. I'm not saying that. Neither am I saying if somebody interprets this passage of Scripture this way and I interpret it that way, then they're wrong and I'm right and we must have a theological debate on Facebook about it. I'm not saying that either. I'm saying the problem with literalism is if you read a passage of scripture and say, I take it literally and you believe it, and then somebody else comes along or you hear a Bible teacher or you read a book that has some insights into that passage, into the culture and the background and the figures of speech, and you choose to reject that because you want to stick to a woodenly, artificially literal interpretation, 
That's not helping you grow in your knowledge of God and in his word. Literalism actually stunts your growth. There is so much more in God's word than you or I have ever learned yet. And keep on growing. That's what I'm seeing. And when we talk about dualism, I am not saying there's no devil, there's no evil, there's no darkness. What I'm saying is this, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. What I'm saying is this, Jesus defeated all of our enemies through his death and resurrection. What I'm saying is this, if you feel like you're under a spiritual attack, don't fill your mind with morbid books and YouTube videos about demons. Go and hide yourself in the love of Jesus Christ. Get into the light when you're in the light the darkness cannot touch you. Focus on the right thing. Don't focus on the wrong thing. Okay. And here is really what I'm trying to say. By the way, see those four spiritual diseases? Have you noticed that we, even though pe when people buy into them, they buy into them with the best of intentions. When people buy into legalism, it's because I, I need to stop sinning. I need to stop sinning. So I better have a, a, a list of rules about my behavior. I need a list of rules about the way I should behave. Because if I behave the wrong way, God might smite me or the devil might jump on my back. And I need a list of all the correct beliefs. Because if I don't have a list of all the correct beliefs, I might believe something that's wrong and I might be deceived. And so people buy into these things with the best of intentions. But we all know deep down in our heart that they do not produce the fruit that we want in our life. Have you noticed we never sing any worship songs about the four spiritual diseases? Have you noticed that we never sing, I am struggling in my human flesh to obey a legalistic list of rules? so that I can please God. We never sing that. But we sing, you love me just the way I am. You forgive my sins by your grace. Have you noticed we never sing dualistic worship songs? Oh Lord, Satan is so mighty. I'm hiding from the Antichrist in a bomb shelter in Northern BC. <laughs> we never sing that. But we sing songs about how the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Have you noticed we never sing songs about literalism? Oh Lord, Jesus said, if your hand offends you, cut it off. We've all brought our swords to church today to chop our hands off. <laughs> Nobody sings that. Nobody takes that literally. Well, actually some people do. There have been people in history who have chopped off their hand and plucked out their eyes because they read that verse where Jesus said, if your hand offends you, cut it off. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. And rather than engage their brain and think this could be a figure of speech, they've gone ahead and done it literally. One of the church's most famous theologians, it was a man called Oregon of Alexandria. And when he was a young Christian, he was a bit of a literalist. And he read that verse where Jesus said, some people make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of God. 
And he got two bricks and made himself a eunuch. I won't go into all the details of that. Jackson did a whole message on becoming a eunuch recently. <laughs> now, Oregon thankfully learned his lesson after a painful lesson it was. And afterwards, he spent the rest of his career teaching Christians that a lot of the Bible is allegorical and not intended to be taken literally. All I want you to do is to learn that lesson without going through the pain that Oregon went through, okay? So some people do take, but nobody sings worship songs about that. No one sings worship songs about the four spiritual diseases. We sing worship songs about how great God is, not how great the devil is. We sing worship songs about how much he forgives us, not about how sinful we are. We sing worship songs about how our future is safe in his hands, not how we're on the verge of a nervous breakdown because we've been filling our mind with YouTube conspiracy videos about the end times. And so that should teach us something. And this is what I'm saying. Can you give me my, my two squares up here? This is what I'm saying. When I became a Christian, it was an exciting time. I was growing in my faith. I was learning more about God. My life was being gradually transformed. I wasn't perfect, and I'm still not, but I was on a journey with God. But then I went through a phase in my life where I actually got stuck, really got stuck spiritually. I knew more about the Bible than I ever had before, and I knew about all the different doctrines that people debated and argued about, but my relationship with God got stagnant. It was kind of like this. I want you to imagine this square here. It was kind of like I was on a journey through life, and... I wasn't a believer yet, but God was at work in my life and he brought me to a place where I put my faith in Christ and he became my savior and everything was brand new and I began to grow in my relationship with God. But at one point, I got, with the best of intentions, I got bogged down in this square. Each one was one of the, each side is one of the four spiritual diseases, literalism. You know, I better make sure, I, if, I really, if I'm really serious about the Bible, I better take it 100% literally. But if I was really serious about it, I would want to understand it, what it really means, not just how it reads to me in my mind at our surface level. And then I, I got into legalism as well. I got legalistic and and uh, oh, we need a list of rules. There it was there. And then... Legalism produces dualism. Well, I'm a little bit frightened that if I break these rules and sin, you know, I might open the door to the devil because he's so great and mighty, and there was that. And then futurism, oh my goodness, we, I, we need to read all these end time scriptures and try and work out how they all fit together because if I don't get it all right, then I might end up getting my head chopped off or something like that. That's somewhere in the book of Revelation. And, and, and I got stuck with all of this knowledge but it was like I was, I was on a journey of faith with God and then I stopped. And the problem with these spiritual diseases is this. Not only do they make you stop growing, they tell you that you don't need to grow anymore because you already have learned it all. And if you learn anything new and move on, you could be getting led astray down the wrong path. 
And that is the trap. After I became a pastor, I realized that it wasn't just me that fell into that trap. So many people stop growing because they start off by placing their faith in a living God and in a living Savior, and then they end up putting their faith in a set of beliefs and in a list of behaviors. And all of a sudden, instead of a living, ongoing journey of discovery, an adventure of learning more and more new things about God and being led more and more down the right path for your life, you stay camp, you, you set up camp here. And then you argue with everybody else who's outside the box. And here is what I realized that people maybe were misunderstanding me. If I'm saying, on my journey of faith, after getting stuck and realizing, goodness, I've, I've got all these doctrines that I think are correct, but I feel spiritually dry inside. Even my prayer life feels dry. I'm reading the Bible trying to work out what it means. I used to read it to feed my soul. And then I began to pray and say, Lord, I want out of this rut. I mean, I need to, I, 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 I want a growing. I want to return to my first love. I want, I want to know you at work in my life. And I prayed the prayer of Ephesians that God would give me the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that the eyes of my heart would be opened wide and flooded with light so that I may know how great and wide and deep is his love so that I may begin to understand the great inheritance he has for me. Not this little religious prison that I've put myself in. And as I began to pray that, God began to open my eyes and I began to see new things in scripture and new things in life that stopped me being stuck and got me back to an ongoing journey of faith. Here is how I think sometimes people misunderstand me. I think people are saying, I was stuck on this square and then I re-examined the Bible and I realized that some of these beliefs I had were wrong. So now I've changed them to these beliefs and I want everybody to get off of this square and onto this square because that square's wrong and this square's right. And then once you're on this square, you can join me and we can argue with the people in that square all the time that you're in, it wasn't a pillar of salt, it was a figure of speech. You're doubting the Bible. No, I'm stuck studying the Bible. <laughs> Folks, that is not, I'm not saying get off of your square and get onto my square. I'm not saying stop interpreting that passage this way and start interpreting it this way. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying get rid of the freaking squares altogether. That's what I'm saying. Have an ongoing relationship with God. Live your life with eyes wide open. And listen, I want to see you with eyes wide open. Don't want to turn away to my wee religious box and miss what you're doing in the moment. Lay my defenses down and run into your freedom. That's what I'm saying, people. That's what I'm trying to say. Now, we're going to look at two Literalism and dualism. Let's look at literalism first. Literalism. And I've put here ravens or Arabians. Because since the book got published, I have noticed that this is the new joke on social media. 
I've noticed people saying, oh, can you, can you pray for our ministry? We're going on a mission trip and we're needing the Lord to really supply. And then somebody else is putting a wisecrack in. Do you want them to supply your needs through Arabians or Ravens? And I thought, you've read the book. Let me tell you, there is a story in the Old Testament. And this was what, and remember, this is about my journey of faith. Maybe there are other things in the Bible that are important for your eyes to be open to. Maybe this is meaningless to you, but to me, in my journey of faith, it was important for my eyes to be open to this. There's a story where the prophet Elijah uh, was in the land during a terrible famine. And during that famine, he went down and sat beside a brook called the Kidron Brook. And there was no food anywhere. And the Bible says, and the Lord spoke to ravens to take Elijah food twice a day. Now, I'd read that story before. I'm happy to believe that it's true. I'm happy to accept it the way it is. Although here was the, here's the problem with that. If I just believe, what it, believe it the way it reads in English and take it literally and accept it the way it is, what am I doing? I, am be, I get to believe that at one point in history, in one place on the globe, in one particular culture, at some point, God sent birds with food to feed somebody. Okay, I get to believe that that happened. How does that affect my life? I have never had a blue jay with a credit card in its beak fly in my window. <laughs> never. So I can read it, I can believe it, but I can't relate to it. And also, that story used to bother me a bit because I thought, where were the birds getting the food from? I mean, there was a famine in the land. If people had food, they only had a little bit of food. Were, were, was God sending birds to fly into people's houses and steal their last meal before they ate it and then take it to Elijah? So as I began to study and research and look up Bible commentaries and encyclopedias and all kinds of things, I discovered that many, many Bible scholars, especially those who know the ancient Near Eastern culture, said, by the way, ravens means Arabians. It was a name that was given to the people of the town of Oreb, from which the name Arab eventually developed. And they were known as ravens because they traveled around with black, kind of like Bedouins, with black robes and so on. And what this passage is saying is, and they were God-fearing people, that God laid it upon the hearts of these people to make sure that the man of God was looked after. And when I read that, and then I, I really, really researched it. And said, now you might say, yeah, but I, I don't have all these Bible commentaries. And all you have to do is go to Wikipedia and type in the word Arabian and go down to the Hebrew and it will tell you it's the word ravens. And it'll even give you the biblical quotations. And as my eyes opened to that, I thought, not only do I get to believe that the story's true, but I also get to apply it to my life. Let me give you an example. I remember one time, 
and like, this has happened to me dozens of times in my life. But one time, we needed, uh, an unexpected emergency came up, and we needed a large sum of money. And we managed to get it all together, but we were $1,000 short, like exactly, $1,000 short. And we were working about how, how can we work out this last $1,000, and we couldn't get it. So Christine and me prayed and asked God to some way, somehow, we were open to any way that he would supply that $1,000. That was at nighttime. We prayed that, then we went to bed. Next day we woke up, about half of the day went by normally, our doorbell went. I opened the door, the front door, and there was a couple standing there, a Christian couple that we knew. And they said, we were praying this morning and the Lord told us to put a thousand dollars in an envelope and come to the trenches house and give it to you. I don't know what it's for, but apparently you need it. Thank you very much. And thank you, Lord. But no thanks to you blue jays because you didn't give me anything. You see, I can relate to that story. I've got faith that God can speak to people's hearts and tell them to provide my needs. Sometimes he's spoken to my heart and told me to help somebody else with their need. All of a sudden, instead of reading an ancient story that sounds a little bit like Esau's fables, but I'll believe it anyway because it's the word of God, all of a sudden it becomes, ah, I can relate to this passage. Now, the reason I use that example is because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what you believe. There's nothing doctrinal in it. There's nothing, I'm not denying the Trinity or salvation through Jesus Christ or anything like that. And the message is still the same. God can provide all your needs, whether he uses blue jays or a couple that were in prayer one morning. God can provide all your needs. But I just... To me, my eyes were open to this story in a fresh way that made me feel like the same God who was the God of Elijah is the same God who's the God of Martin today. And that same God has never changed. And he was a provider then and he's a provider now. Sometimes there was other things that my eyes were open to. Like I read these passages that said, the stars will fall from the sky and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. And thought, oh my goodness, when's that going to happen? And then as my eyes were open to more and more of God's word, I would realize that these, these things were not to be taken literally. They were ancient figures of speech. If I said to you, it's raining cats and dogs out there, None of you picture puppies and kittens splattering. <laughs> None of you picture that. We're going to slide on the blood on the way home, you know. <laughs> Nobody has that image because you know it's a... F if I say Conor McGregor punched that guy's lights out, nobody pictures him going up and punching the guy's headlights. You know it's a figure of speech. The guy was knocked out. Put up that next scripture. I can't remember where it's from. The next slide. Put up the next slide. Isaiah 13. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel and with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. 
the sun will be dark at his rising and the moon will not shed its light. Oh my goodness, if we take that literally, when's that going to happen? I'm going to tell you when it, it happened in 583 BC. It happened, but it didn't happen. This, if you read it in context, is a prophecy about the fall of Babylon. And during the fall of Babylon, these figures of speech, which were very common in those, as common as punch your lights out. God was going to punch the whole city's lights out. That's what it's saying. It's saying, Babylon, you're an evil, wicked nation, and your power is going to fall. And we're going to use the figure of speech, the stars will fall from the sky. Now, if you want to take that literally, you're going to have to say that all the stars stopped shining and all of that stuff happened in 583 BC, but it didn't. But the prophecy was fulfilled. Babylon did fall. And so this began to, I'm, I'm encouraging you to enlarge your picture of God. If you think you understand a passage of Scripture, and if your understanding is meaningful to you, and it is, if it's helpful to you, and if it's faith-inspiring to you, that's wonderful. But keep your eyes open for the fact that as you journey through life, and as you need to see and know new things, God will lead and guide you into all truth. That's the purpose of the Holy Spirit. So let's be careful about, about stunting our spiritual growth, stopping the journey because we think, yep, I've got my list of beliefs now and I'm going to stick to them and nobody's going to make me move off it. Watch out for that. It's a trap. It's a trap designed to stop you growing in your faith. And it's all, it all comes out of insecurity. It comes out of emotional insecurity. But, 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 but what if I believe the wrong thing? And, and, and what if I do the wrong thing? And, and what if that's not the correct interpretation of that verse? And is your faith in your brain's ability to understand things? Or is your faith in the resurrected Jesus Christ who said, you're safe in my hands, nobody can pluck you out of my hands, and even if they could, you're also in my Father's hands, he said, and no one can pluck you out of do you believe? Do you have more faith in the devil's ability to take you down the wrong path than you do in God's ability to lead you down the right path? Let's open our eyes wide to see that God is at work in every area of your life. Second disease, dualism. Dualism. Dualism, I need you to put the next thing up. Dualism is, and I've got this as a dictionary definition. There's different ways this can play out. One way is, it's a doctrine that the universe is under the dominion of two opposing principles one of which is good and one of which is evil. Now you might think, well, well isn't that biblical? There's a God and there's a devil. But you, you think they're equal to each other? Do you think the devil's equal in power to God? Because they would need to be. Do you notice we, we never sing songs about how great Satan is, but we sing this, you have no equal. You have no rival. Now and forevermore you reign. There's only one person that reigns and that is the Lord. So 
And then another way that dualism comes is between the material world and the spiritual world. It can be a view of human beings as, uh, as, as made up of an evil part and a good part, spirit and matter, you know? The, the body is evil, the physical world is evil, it's all fallen and evil, and we must escape into spiritual things. But folks, God isn't just the God of the spiritual world. God isn't just the God of the church. God is the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. God is the God of the whole world. Now, dualism is like, it's a really hard thing for people to grasp. Dualism does not mean two things. For instance, there are males and there are females. There are two things. Dualism does not mean two things. Because in the creation account, God created the heavens and the earth. He separated the land and the water. He made the fish of, of the sea and the birds of the sky. He created male and female. And every time, he didn't say, oh, that's bad, that's dualistic. Oh, that's bad, that's dualistic. He didn't do that. He said, it is good, it is good, it is good. God said, that you can have two things and they're good. Because two things can work together. They don't have to be in opposition. They can work together as one harmonious whole. It only becomes dualism when you... There's two ways it can become dualism. One is when two things that are equal, let's say male and female, when you make them opposed to each other and you have misogynists and misandrists, they hate each other. I mean, I posted a video on social media that had statistics about the amount of men that commit suicide, the amount of men that are homeless, and I said, you know, men need encouragement and they need support. First comment, what about all the rapists? Let's just let all these men commit suicide and be homeless because there's a rapist out there somewhere. And it becomes this, this argument. I was called a fascist. I was called a Nazi. All kinds of things because I said men need support. Now, if my video had been about women, it'd have been women need support. Yeah, but what about all these gold diggers? <laughs> It's only when you make two things in opposition to each other. Because when you do that, you see, you see, if you can open your eyes wide, you have a much bigger perspective on life. When you make two things in opposition to each other, you have the tendency to demonize the other one and divinize your own. Mine is of God and yours is of the devil. We see it in politics all the time. We see it in politics. I hold this position because they're a bunch of racists. Well, I hold this position because they're a bunch of communists. You know, and we demonize the other side and make our own side so righteous. I saw a quote on social media recently, and it was a very good quote, and it said this. It said, before you enter into an argument with somebody else, ask yourself, is this person emotionally mature enough to even understand the concept of different perspectives? I thought, that's a good quote. Then I read the comments. They were all arguing about it. <laughs> they were all arguing about what this quote meant. And very quickly, 
it became dualism. They began to divinize their own. My opinion is divine and demonize the others. Your opinion is demonic. Before you knew it, the argument, they were calling each other Nazis and fascists and all kinds of things. Over a quote about being open-minded to different perspectives. <laughs> that is classical dualistic thinking and we get it all the time. Look, I want to just, oh, I don't have time to do this. I want to just show you something. Uh, put up my, the, little, the little short Isaiah passage for me. Can you put up the little short one? Okay, so there's a passage in that, see, See, when we, don't open, when we don't actually read the Bible in context, and when we buy into fear, we tend to make the darkness bigger and bigger and bigger. And one of the ways that Christians do that, you see, the Bible talks about our enemy, the devil, and it says, be sober, be vigilant. Your adversary, the devil, roams around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, but resist him steadfastly in your faith. So we think, okay, there's an enemy. He's roaming around like a roaring lion. I have to be steadfast in my faith. But honestly, people, the Bible doesn't tell us that much about the devil. It tells us a lot about God and a very little about the devil. That itself should tell us a story. It also doesn't even explain the origins of the devil. So what we do is we find obscure passages, rip them out of their context and make them literal. Look at this. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid the nations low. Have you ever heard this verse applied to the devil, anybody? Let's read on. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned in the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high God. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. You will hear, and I have heard, and at one point in my life I would even have said, oh, this is obviously describing the devil. He was once a powerful angel in heaven, but he was fallen from heaven, and he tried to get above the stars of God, but he was cast down, and he's brought down to the, the pit. But there's a problem with that, because this isn't just there on its own, it's a whole chapter. And if you read the whole chapter, it doesn't say it's about the devil. It says it's about the king of Babylon. And it says that it's about a mortal man. And it says that he's been a wicked ruler and he's oppressed people and made them slaves and he's cut down whole forests and burned them with fire and, and that he has become vicious and violent and ruthful. And then it's got this. But, we, but if we take it literally, we say, but the king of Babylon, was not, how could he go above the stars of heaven? This, it must have changed the subject. And then there's another passage that we tie in with. Ezekiel. Put the next one up, please. Ezekiel. This is about the king of Tyre. If you read it in context, it says a prophecy against the king of Tyre. And it tells you about the king of Tyre and about all of his kingdom. And then in the middle of it, it says this. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Oh, this must be about the devil because the king of Tyre was never in Eden. Right? Every precious stone adorned you. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. And the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as the guardian cherub. Oh, this is a fallen angel, you see. For so I ordained you. 
You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. That must be some weird thing in heaven or something like that. You were blameless in all your ways till the day you were created till wickedness was found in you through your widespread trade. Oh my goodness, Satan's been involved in the stock market. I never knew that. (laughs) You were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God and I expelled you guarding cherub from among the fiery stones. But again, before it, it is very clearly talking about a human king. After it is very clearly talking about a human king. But if we're going to take this literally, it kind of seems a little bit supernatural and otherworldly. And I had in my mind for many years as a Christian, I had in my mind this picture. You see, this is how literalism can lead to dualism. I took those verses literally to be about some supernatural being because somebody told me that, and I accepted it. And even though I knew it was a prophecy about the king of Babylon and the king of Tyre, I don't understand how that fits in. So, you know, he must have changed. You know, he doesn't mention the devil, but he must have changed the subject and talked about the devil and then went back to talking about the king again. Then one day, I was watching a BBC documentary about about Mesopotamia and the culture of the ancient Near East, and my eyes opened wide. Put up the first picture, will you? This is what a king's palace looked like in the ancient Near East. This bit here is the temple. Over there at that top corner is his palace. Between the temple and the palace is a walled garden. When a king became a king in the ancient Near East, he was anointed by the priests and he was given certain titles. He was given titles like, you are the morning star and the evening star. You are the star of of Osiris, if it was in Egypt. Or you are the holy cherub that guards the palace to the gods. They were given these otherworldly titles because people believed, or or the king said, that they were descendants of the gods and they would return to the gods, that they came from the stars and they would go. It was nothing to do with the Anunnaki, by the way. But they came from the stars and they're going back to the stars. They were given these heavenly titles. Another thing about them is not only were they given these heavenly titles, but the king was the only person apart from the priest who was allowed to go up these big stepped pyramids, these ziggurats. And they would build them higher and higher because they believed if they could get them up to the clouds, they could get to where the gods were. Remember the Tower of Babel? And so, and in those temples, they had altars with glowing stones of fire. They had fire pits. And the only person who was allowed to walk amongst the stones of fire in the temple that goes up to the clouds who was named the morning star and the anointed cherub was the kings of those areas. And one of the things that the kings were supposed to do when they, when they needed wisdom was they were supposed to go into something called the paradise, which simply means in ancient Persian a walled garden, and it was called the Garden of God, and it was modeled on Eden, because the Eden story was believed by all the ancient Near Eastern Sumerians and everybody. 
They, it was modeled on Eden with, they, had, they, they put um, irrigation channels in it, aqueducts to make it look like the rivers of Eden. And the king was supposed to go into the garden of God to contemplate to get wisdom. But both of those kings, the king of Tyre and the king of Babylon, had built their big empires, had walked among the fiery stones, had climbed the steps to try and get above the clouds to meet with the gods, had been in that paradise garden of God, had indulged in warfare and trade all around and had become evil and oppressive. And God is saying your kingdoms will fall and all your titles will be stripped away from you. I don't know if that means anything on your journey of faith, but on my journey of faith, what a relief it was to realize that my enemy is not a roaring lion. He's just like one. He's not even a biting lion. He's a roaring lion. Do you know what a roaring lion does? Do you know that the male lion with the big mane doesn't actually do the hunting? It's the female ones that do what the male does, he's the roaring lion and he will get round here and roar at the prey to give it a fright so that the prey will run that way and be ambushed. Goodness, Christians are supposed to be people of faith. It's so easy to give them a fright and make them run in the wrong direction. Oh, be careful, be careful, the devil might get you. You know, he might put a curse on you, he might do this and he might do that, he might do the next thing. And you run away and hide in fear and get, your, get all these defenses around you with your beliefs and your behavior and all that to try and keep things right. Where in actual fact, if you realized, if I walk in the light of Jesus, if I just build my relationship with God, the evil one can come, but he has nothing in me, which is a quote from Jesus. Let me show you something. Light man, can you kill all the lights in the room? Right, it's dark. We still have this screen on, so it's not totally dark. Okay, it's dark. I, and, and I better stop walking around, because I don't know where the edge of the platform is now. <laughs> Jesus said, if the blind lead the blind, they'll both fall into a pit. I, if we're walking about in darkness, if we're concentrating on the darkness, if we're filled with fear about the darkness, we're going to end up falling off the platform and hurting ourselves. But if we say, let there be light... The light shines in the darkness. And the, now, does the darkness exist? Yeah, here's a little bit of darkness over here in the corner. There's another little bit of darkness down there in that corner. I can see some shadows here. There's a bit. Of, yes, the darkness exists, but compared to the light, it is infinitesimally small. It doesn't really matter. All I need to do is keep out the darkness and keep in the light. Maybe instead of focusing on the devil and on sin and on hell and on the end times, Maybe I should focus on Jesus and God and grace and love and forgiveness. <laughs> Keep your focus in the right place, people. That's all I'm saying. And I've gone over my time, so very quickly, jump to my, my not the prayer, my second last slide. My second last slide. Here's what I'm saying to you. People read the scriptures. But don't read them to try and work out a whole bunch of doctrines so you can argue with people. Read them to feed your soul. And God will reveal things to you. 
when you need to see them at the right time, when you're taking the next step. But if you park, if you park your faith up here and stop moving forward, there's nothing new to show you. But have an ongoing discovery of a, 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 a adventure of discovery, a relation. Keep the romance of your relationship with God alive. Let him reveal himself to you in new ways over and over and over again. And don't just get stuck in last year's food. There's fresh manna every day. Also, if you read something obscure in the Bible, mm, what the heck could that mean? Cut your hand off? I'm not really sure what that means. If you read something obscure, don't jump to conclusions. Research it a little bit. Or else just leave it on the shelf. Maybe there's enough in the Bible that you do understand that you're not putting into practice yet and you should concentrate on that. Develop confidence in God rather than certainty in your beliefs. I have beliefs. We all have beliefs. And our beliefs are formed more and more as we read Scripture and as we grow in faith. But hey folks, sometimes I've realized that my beliefs are a bit off. And I've had to kind of tweak them a little bit. You know? I, my faith is not in my beliefs. My faith is in the living God and in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. I am not saved by my doctrinal knowledge and I am not saved by my perfect moral behavior. I am not kept by those things. I, I, I won't lose my salvation if a wrong doctrine pops into my head or if I say a bad word or something like that. I, I, and, and I won't change myself and get rid of all my sins and deal with all my issues by trying hard on the flesh, I have been saved by grace. I am being kept by grace. And any changes that take place in my life in the process of sanctification will be a work of God's grace. Therefore, what I should focus on is not all these lists of beliefs and lists of rules. What I should focus on is making sure that my heart and life is, are wide open to God's grace so that what began by grace will continue by grace. And folks, enjoy your life. It's God's gift to you. And he's the God of all. By the way, I loved something that Pablo said earlier on. He said, Spain, the statistics are only 1% of the population are believers. So there's a lot of darkness there. But he didn't say, oh, pray for us. Pray the darkness doesn't get us. Sometimes it feels so dark and we feel so oppressed we don't know what to do. We are one of the 1%. That's not what he said. He said, so we have the privilege of taking the light to those people. We have the privilege of taking the light to those people. I want to get one of those flashlights that you see on social media that it says it's ex-army or something. And you switch it on. Have you ever seen those? And you switch it on and it's like the whole street lights up. I want to get one of those to annoy the neighbors, you know? <laughs> You've got the light of Jesus Christ inside you. Everywhere you go, the darkness is pushed back. Not because you're pushing it back, but because you're bringing the light. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness will not overcome it. We're going to, let's all stand. We're going to finish again. 
by doing what we've done over the last couple of weeks, we've prayed the Lord's Prayer. But because everybody knows the Lord's Prayer and we're so familiar with it, sometimes you can just rattle off our Father in heaven. Amen. <laughs> and not really take it in. Because the translation that we are used to, it comes from the Greek and it was translated into English. And it's a great prayer. But actually Jesus spoke in Aramaic, and when you look at the Aramaic manuscripts and you translate them into English, they bring a little bit of a fuller meaning, and it makes the prayer fresh because it's worded in a way that we're not used to wording it. Let's pray this prayer, and as we pray this prayer, let's make this a prayer that we are opening up all of our life to God's light. We're not going to get stuck in like some legalistic or, or literalistic or fear-filled futuristic or, or fear-filled dualistic faith. We're not going to turn our living faith into a static religion. We're going to keep growing and keep opening up to more. Okay, we're looking at it. We ready? We're not ready. Are we ready? Yeah. We don't read. We don't read the first line. The Lord's Prayer, Aramaic version. We're going to start. Okay. You see, the Greek one says, "Our Father in heaven." Do you know the Aramaic actually says, "My beloved Daddy." My beloved Daddy. Let's say this prayer together. Okay, one, two, three. Beloved Father, who fills all realms, may you be honored in me. Let your divine rule come now. Let your will come true in all the universe, in the heavens and on earth. Give us all that we need for each day and untangle the knots of unforgiveness that bind us within as we also let go of the guilt of others. Let us not be lost in superficial things, but let us be free from that which keeps us from our true purpose. From you comes all rule, the strength to act, and the song that beautifies all from age to age. Amen. Let's give God a praise. Come on. The color are just going to take us out with a song. Let's just fill our hearts. Come on, open up your heart, your mind. Lord, just open our eyes, open our spirits, open our minds. Let us never become stuck, but let us keep on learning, keep on growing, keep on walking and journeying with you. May our faith always be a relationship and never become a religion.